0: Hello my modern women, this is your host, Nicole Colantoni with Single at 30, the manual, the manual for the manual modern, woman. modern woman. Hello and welcome back to this last solo app of the season. I wanted to say a big thank you to those of you who have been listening to this season. It was a lot longer than previous seasons, with 21 episodes all up, including the Sunday Dating Scary series. As promised, now whenever a listener writes a review, I will be sharing it before each episode. This week, I saw a review titled, My Favorite Addition to My Weekly Routine, with the message, the dating landscape, particularly during the pandemic, has been challenging. And this podcast has created a much-needed community for all of us navigating the dating scene. Nicole speaks about dating and relationships in such a real and eloquent way. Most of the time, I feel like she's reading my mind. If you want someone who is authentic in your ears every week, you've come to the right place. Thank you, Nicole. Love your work, X. Whoever wrote this review, thank you so much for your kind words. It genuinely means so much. Please DM me and let me know who and where you are so I can send a token of my appreciation. I would also like to announce the first single at 30 end of season giveaway. All you have to do to go into the running for the giveaway is post on your Instagram story, which single at 30 episode was your favorite, why it was your favorite, and then tag single underscore at underscore 30, as well as a minimum of two friends of yours that come to mind. In return, I will be gifting one of you a $300 voucher at a place of your choice. If you have a private Instagram account, please don't forget to DM me a screenshot of your story so I can verify it. And the winner will be announced one week later. So as you know, it's been a minute between solo apps, so I should probably update you on what's been happening. For my OJ listeners, I am not sure if you'll remember, but at the beginning of season one, I spoke about a guy I went on a few dates with who ended up being a total monster. I can't remember if I even told you, but this guy in particular ended up being the person who inspired the whole concept of Single at 30. Basically, when I refused to take off my clothes and sleep with him, he asked me if it was because I had a deformed vagina. That was just one of the vile things he managed to say to me that night. But when I went home, I was so shook by the whole experience, I ended up sending a voice note to my nearest and dearest about it. And I remember just staring at the wall for ages, thinking to myself, I can't be the only single woman experiencing this. And I just thought to myself, I want to create a one-stop shop where I can just air the realities of being a woman. And in that very moment, the title Single at 30 came to me. Anyways, the reason I'm sharing all of this is because I later found out that a friend dated this same guy and also had a number of horrible experiences with him. And then a year ago, we heard he got engaged to a woman who he had been seeing for something like a year. My friend and I were like, who on earth would ever agree to marry this monster? As it turns out, they were only married for two months before she left him. My friend and I were obviously shocked, but not surprised to find this out. But then last week, I received a follow request from him on Instagram. I can't tell you how much grief this guy caused me a couple of years ago. I felt so violated by him and really questioned my worth because of some of the things he said to me. But it just goes to show you that what goes around comes back around because now he's the one clutching at straws. And in case you're wondering, no, I haven't accepted his follow request and I never will. And that, my modern women, is karma. So, I mentioned at the beginning of the season that Nick was moving in. He has since moved in and it's been pretty dreamy living with him. For those of you that don't know, I am a cat mom of a beautiful ragdoll named Luna. Luna turns four in January and she is literally the apple of my eye. She is a ragdoll, so she is meant to be docile by nature. But instead, she is the sassiest female I've ever encountered. You might know, but ragdolls are known for their floppiness. But Luna literally refuses to subscribe to her breed. And when you pick her up, she goes super tense, almost like a ruler. When I first got her, I remember speaking to the vet because I was concerned about this weird breathing sound she would make when she was unimpressed. She actually made it earlier today, but she would literally stamp her foot and huff. And I would say to the vet, I've never seen anything like this before. Like I grew up with Burmese cats. And the vet was like, yeah, each animal will have behavioral traits that are unique to them. I have no idea where Luna learned those traits, but she's certainly one of a kind. And Luna had been in my life for two and a half years before Nick came into the picture. So as you can imagine, it was a bit of a shock for her to have to share her space with someone, let alone a man. And when Nick used to come over in the beginning stages of our relationship, Luna would stare at me with these piercing eyes and her face would be all tense, as if to say, get rid of this imposter. And for the first 10 months of our relationship, after she realized I wasn't going to get rid of him, she would just randomly attack his feet each time he walked past her or when he was brushing his teeth in the bathroom or cooking in the kitchen. It was so heartbreaking to watch this little floof act out towards someone I was developing strong feelings for and there were definitely moments when I was caught in the middle of having to defend both of them and it seriously wasn't until I went overseas for seven weeks and left Nick with Luna for four of those weeks that things started to change. Maybe it was the fact that he was the one who was feeding her but little by little she began to warm to him and finally they are now best buds. I even joked that she has a crush on him and flirts with him. But what Luna doesn't know is that this week she is becoming a big sister. As you all know, Nick and I have been together since July last year, and we are both pretty transparent about wanting to spend the rest of our lives together. So naturally, it felt right to become parents. This is something Nick and I have both wanted for a really long time even before we met each other. But obviously, until we got together, it didn't feel like we were ready. But now we are, and we're both so excited to introduce Luna to her baby brother this week. And we've decided to name him Harley. As you can imagine, I'm also pretty nervous considering how long it took Luna to come round to the idea of Nick. I also don't know if anyone else has ever experienced this before, but my mum guilt is currently through the roof. I just keep imagining coming home with Harley and Luna locking eyes with me, almost as if to say, what have you done? Or what, wasn't I good enough for you? Obviously, Nick is just filled with excitement right now, but that's because Luna is my firstborn, not his. And although he definitely has grown to love Luna, Harley will be his firstborn. And then I start worrying, is Nick going to ignore Luna once we bring Harley home? It's a whole rabbit hole that I'm finding myself lost in at the moment. But another reason why I'm nervous is because Harley is a dog. And not just any dog, a field retriever, which is basically a dark brownie red golden retriever. And Luna is an indoor cat, so her experience with other animals has basically been non-existent. Knowing that we were getting Harley soon, Nick and I thought it would be a good idea to bring a dog over one weekend and trial how she responds to having one in her space. And it was an absolute disaster. Basically, Nick brought home one of his employees' dogs. It was a tiny white oodle of some sort. Unlike me, Nick has grown up with dogs, so I just assumed he knew what he was doing, even when he decided to take the lead off the dog. But what followed was an epic fail, because the dog thought it would be a good idea to chase Luna around the house. As you know, Luna is a ragdoll, and I have literally never heard her hiss at anyone. Yet the second the dog started to approach her, she hissed at her and then bolted to the kitchen. Luna ran so fast that she skidded across the floorboards and literally left a trail of her nails behind. It was literally like a graveyard of nails. Then all we heard was Luna meow for her life as her and the dog came to a head in the kitchen. She was running so fast, she then jumped on the bench to get away from the dog and accidentally knocked her biscuit bowl in the air, which left this huge mess of biscuits all over the kitchen floor. By the time I made it into the kitchen, both Luna and the dog had bolted back into the lounge room and luckily, Nick grabbed the dog and put her back on the lead. Luna was so shaken, she literally hid in my wardrobe for an hour afterwards and when I found her, she was hyperventilating. So, as you can imagine, my greatest fear is that the exact same situation repeats itself on Saturday when we bring Harley home. I am hoping that Luna is able to assert herself as the boss pretty quickly, but if any of you have any tips reintroducing dogs to cats, please let me know. As you can see, I need all the help I can get. As for agreeing on the breed of dog as well as the name, I can't tell you how much of an extreme sport that was. Nick is your quintessential guy, so he wanted to name him Buddy or Barney, which was a strong no from me. I personally always had my heart on the name Albert or Winston. I also always wanted a Samoyed or a Chow Chow, but Nick grew up with retrievers. After a lot of research, I realized that a retriever suited our lifestyle best But by no means was my dog going to be called Buddy. I found out one of his childhood retrievers was named Harley and that his sister recently named her cat Harley. And so together, we thought it would be cute if we named our dog Harley too. Since then, I've had a few moments of doubt that I like to describe as the puppy blues. For so long, I had my heart stuck on a floofy dog. And Harley is such a dog dog. So it's taken me a while to warm up to the idea but when we received photos of what he looked like for the first time last Friday, we were both almost brought to tears. When we pick him up this Friday, I'll make sure to post something to the Single 30 Instagram so you can all get an idea of just how cute he is. As for living with Nick, I know I mentioned it's been dreamy, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you there were moments where I felt seriously tested. When we got back from our overseas trip, Nick never went back to his place. So obviously when our leases were up, it made sense that we just move in together. And while he was staying here full-time, we were just hanging out each night together. It was like living with my bestie. But then once he moved in, reality also set in. Almost immediately, it became apparent that he did a lot of things differently around the house to me. And I was like, oh. And full disclosure, I became a bit of a nag. And then I started to build resentment for being a nag. And then I started to get annoyed with myself because I was like, you're better than this. Don't sweat the small stuff. But I share this because change, regardless of how exciting it is, always has its challenges. It took me about three weeks to figure out how to get used to living with Nick. And thankfully, now we have found our rhythm. But there was definitely a moment there where I was like, oh my God, did I just adopt a fully grown man? And I hated feeling that way because he's so amazing. But as you know, I had been single for close to nine years. And on top of that, I had been living by myself for close to eight. So I had zero practice when it came to sharing a space with a partner. Now that we've been living together for a couple of months, though, we have our designated roles around the house that we've naturally just gravitated to. Like anything in life, you have to figure out what works for you. So my advice to anyone moving in with their partner is try to figure that out ASAP. And instead of nagging or growing resentful over dirty dishes and unmade beds, try to communicate your needs. As Nick liked to remind me during this period, he is not a mind reader. So what might be a pet peeve to you might be no big deal to them. So you have to let them know. And the sooner you do, the better the living situation. Okay, so a couple of months ago, I ran a poll to see what solo apps you wanted me to do and how my upbringing affected my dating life was a popular one. This one is a very sensitive topic to me, but I think it's possibly the most important topic I'll ever talk about. Because whether we are aware of it or not, all of our upbringings impact our love lives in ways we can't imagine. One of my favorite Esther Perel quotes is, "'Tell me how you were loved as a child, and I will tell you how you make love as an adult.'" I mentioned in a Sunday Dating series app that I had a very volatile upbringing. In this episode, I am not going to go into any detail about the person that contributed to that volatile upbringing. For the purpose of this episode, all you need to know is that that person caused a lot of trauma and subsequent abandonment wounding that I have spent the remainder of my life repairing. And to this day, it is still a work in progress. We are relational beings, right? Meaning each one of us is designed to attach to others. So it makes sense that we all seek out love and relationships of some sort, whether it be with friends, family, co-workers, or romantic partners." And as kids and even babies, we learn everything we know about love and connection from our caretakers. They are literally the very first people we have relationships with in life. But the sad reality for a lot of us, myself included, is that we were never modeled and therefore never experienced healthy love growing up. Instead, many of us come from family backgrounds where our parents fought 24-7 or our parents weren't there for us physically or maybe even emotionally, or maybe they got divorced or even dismissed or abused us. And irrespective of what type of childhood you have, most of us end up with wounding of some sort, or at least varying degrees of wounding, which is exactly what happened to me. And whether we like it or not, it is our job as adults to make up for all of the needs that unfortunately and for whatever reason weren't met as children." or heal the parts of ourselves that were damaged by the people we love most. This is because our childhood conditioning informs on a very deep level the way we relate to and connect with others as adults. In addition to that, our conditioning impacts what we think is normal, or even to be expected in each one of our relationships, whether it be personal, professional, or even romantic. And our interpretation and response to our conditioning leads to our relationship patterning later in life, which often follows us throughout our lives. And by relationship patterning, I mean things like pursuing or even chasing unavailable love or rushing into relationships with people we hardly know or don't yet trust or feeling turned on by people who are toxic or mistreat us or losing or even relinquishing our identity in relationships, or shutting ourselves off from love completely. And if you're like me, this stuff might not be immediately apparent to you. It might take a while, if not a lifetime, to connect the dots. And in the meantime, often we attract people who represent a part of our past that still requires healing. Because without realizing, we gravitate towards traits and people that are similar to what we were used to growing up. This is what we often refer to as being our type. An example might look like growing up in a household where your parents were absent and your needs for connection weren't validated. Then your unconscious conditioning might be to expect the same absence and lack of validation from your partners. And when I think about my own relationship patterns, it's not like I'm conscious of them or even fond of them, and I definitely do not go out actively seeking them, but it becomes part of our wiring and emotional makeup on a nervous system level, meaning it feels familiar, it feels normal. As children, we adapt to our environment by forming habitual responses that essentially ensure our survival, whether it is sacrificing our needs by withdrawing and becoming avoidant, or never letting our guard down or asking others for support. This is where the concept of the inner wounded child comes from. Our needs as a child are not met in one form or another. And as a result, we carry those emotional or psychological wounds into our adulthood. And they manifest differently for everyone. That's why I love the phrase, who hurt you so much. Because when anyone mistreats you, it's important to remember that their behavior is coming from a place of wounding. Happy, healed, and conscious people do not hurt people or mistreat people. In my particular instance, I grew up in an environment where I literally felt like I had to walk on eggshells 24-7. Instead of healthy love, all I witnessed was absolute chaos and dysfunction. Someone who was meant to love me more than anything and be my protector made me feel insecure and unsafe all of the time. There was never any consistency and I was always hypervigilant of my surroundings because at any given moment, I felt like I could go from feeling loved to fearing the person who is meant to love me most. So it's no surprise that growing up, I struggled to develop a healthy sense of self because I was constantly in survival mode. And when I started dating, as painful as this is to now admit, I not only attracted partners who mirrored the abuse and dysfunction that was modeled to me and had hijacked my childhood, I too modeled what I had learned growing up. As an adult, I would anxiously chase unavailable love and accept breadcrumbs because that was my experience of what love was meant to look and feel like. That same person would often put me down and make me feel unlovable. So in the process of chasing unavailable love, I would completely self-abandon and accept less than I deserved. Oftentimes, men would be highly critical and dismissive of me, and as a result, they would confirm all of my biggest fears and doubts. And instead of practicing self-love by walking away, I would resort to anger because that was the only form of communication I witnessed as a child. And to give you some background information, I grew up being told I needed a nose job. I was also told that I had a fat tire around my waist that I'd never get rid of no matter how hard I worked out. And when I said I wanted to get fit and healthy, I would purposely be fed McDonald's for dinner. When I said I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, I was told that I was better suited to being a secretary for a lawyer. Whenever I would draw or paint a picture, it was chucked in the bin. When I would express my feelings and fears, I was told to suffer and get over them. I had no safe space to retreat to. At any given moment, my door would be slammed open and I would be met with verbal or physical abuse, including when I was dead asleep." I was made to feel like an imposter in my own home, and instead of being able to eat on the couch, I was forced to eat on the floor. I was grounded once for wetting the hand towel after I washed my hands. I was also grounded as a child for being sent home early from school for having head lice. And I knew I had head lice, but I was too scared to tell anyone because I knew I'd get in trouble for it. When I said I wanted to get into university, every night before an exam, a huge fight would break out, ensuring that I wouldn't be able to study or sleep. I was only ever shown love through material things, but at any given moment those same material objects were taken from me and held ransom until I begged or pleaded. I endured a lot of physical violence from slapping, kicking, to having my bedroom and all my possessions completely vandalized. And so, it's no surprise, I lacked self-confidence and would date men who would criticize my appearance or wouldn't let me eat." Men who would put me down when I shared my hopes and dreams with them, or who would love bomb me and then make me feel crazy for thinking we were serious. Men who would talk about our future together and then break up with me because it was summer and they wanted to sleep with other women, only to then get back together with me when it suited them in the coolest seasons. It is also no surprise I would end up in relationships that had huge power imbalances. Relationships where I never felt like I could be vulnerable or show my real self. Relationships where I would bend or mold myself to fit into their life. Relationships where I was consistently cheated on and gaslighted. Relationships where I looked to my partner to validate me. It's textbook, right? I dated men who never made me feel safe, secure, or loved because I grew up never feeling safe, secure, or loved. All I knew was chaos, and that's what I attracted in my partner's. I thought it was normal for love to have intense highs and lows because I never experienced peace. I always thought you had to fight for love or to earn love or prove yourself because I was always attacked and beaten down by the person I loved most." In my childhood home, I would alternate between fight or flight mode, and there was never anything in between. And I would mirror that same dynamic in my relationships. I was either fighting with my partners or unable to sleep or eat because I was so anxious when they would ignore my texts or calls, and yet I took them back after every single conflict or betrayal. This was the song and dance I was used to, and it never occurred to me that there could be any other dynamic. And to go back to Esther Perel's quote, in my 20s, the idea of making love literally repulsed me. And I could only sexually connect with my partners when they were choking me, slapping me, or pulling my hair in the bedroom. Intimacy terrified me because I had never experienced it or felt safe being intimate before. Instead, I mistook chaos for chemistry and even connection and was turned on by being dominated and violently handled because that's how I was shown love and that's all I knew." Because I grew up in an environment where what I knew to be love was deeply conditional, I would consistently chase unavailable partners and beg for them to never leave me or take me back, even when I was miserable and knew the relationship wasn't working. And I behaved that way because I was so utterly terrified of being abandoned by them. And I was so terrified of being abandoned again because the one person who was meant to love me unconditionally never showed me love and instead abandoned me before the age of 17. I literally had no baseline for healthy love. My understanding of relationships consisted only of intense highs followed by intense lows. So, what I now recognize as red flags were completely normalized to me. And I used to find turbulent or drama free dates or partners too vanilla or boring. Instead, I was attracted to people who reflected or confirmed or even repeated my inner wounding because that's exactly what was familiar to me. And there was never a moment when I enjoyed this toxic song and dance with each of my romantic partners, but in a sense, it felt safe to stick to the same hauntingly familiar merry-go-round or roller coaster of conflicts and disappointments that I experienced in previous relationships. I guess on some unconscious level, I thought I deserved it. Or that if I could rewrite the narrative with them, it would somehow mean that what happened in my childhood was wrong or didn't define me. Or that this new person could make it all better. Or that by rewriting the narrative in my romantic relationships, I was closing the chapter to my childhood. And even as I say this, I I get emotional just thinking about it because I remember how I felt at the time. But the good news is our attachment styles as well as our patterning are not fixed But unlearning isn't easy. And I speak from experience when I say just how deeply confronting and even disturbing it can be to see the many ways in which we contributed to or even perpetuated our own pain and misery in relationships. But in the same way, our patterns are not fixed. Fortunately, we are not bound by our past. We always have the choice to be a victim to our circumstances or learn the lesson and rewrite the narrative. When I think back to how I behaved and what I put up with in my previous relationships, I am literally overwhelmed with shame, guilt, sadness, and humiliation. But we cannot become too attached with our past selves or even the person that we were yesterday. You have to be compassionate towards yourself while you heal and grow and consistently remind yourself that you are worthy of and open to receiving love. It makes sense, right? That in order to grow, evolve, and even transform, we need to stop indulging the very patterns we are ready to transcend. Change does not happen through criticism, judgment, self blame, or even guilt. As the saying goes, what we resist persists. And if you don't know what I mean, I'm referring to thoughts like, I'm broken or I'm not good enough, or I deserve to suffer, or I'm unlovable. The trick is to approach our patterns with compassion and realize that we are totally in charge of our own healing process. And this is by no means an overnight job. It takes work, a lot of work. In my particular instance, it took nine years of being single to overcome my conditioning around love to challenge my beliefs around my worth and what I deserved, and to get clear on my values and my needs in a relationship. Instead of rejecting your patterning, ask yourself what is it trying to teach me? We've spoken a lot about how our triggers are our teachers. Well, so is your patterning. If we are mindful and attentive, we can begin to see the ways in which the type of partners we choose. And the relationships we end up in are revealing unconscious parts of us that still require growth and deep, deep healing. In my particular instance, I needed to learn how to express my needs in a healthy way, how to set firmer boundaries, how to stand up for myself and own my worth. I also needed to learn how to stop being so codependent on my partners and stop looking to them to validate me, to make me feel secure, to save me from my past. Or be the solution to all of my pain. I also needed to learn how to stop being a doormat and when to walk away. And then I had to learn how to be vulnerable in order to let healthy, conscious, and intentional love back into my life. Maybe you recognize yourself in my story. Maybe you don't. Our patterns are unique to us and so are the lessons that come with them. But irrespective of your story, with intention and willingness, we can all create healthy relationships, not only with ourselves, but also our romantic partners. When we're running on our past conditioning, what's familiar, our triggers, our wounds, we might not be able to see our patterns clearly, if at all. The most important lesson for me was figuring out how to learn to choose a partner based on my worth instead of my wounding. I needed to learn how to stop abandoning who I was and what I needed in order to be loved. I needed to realize that instead of constantly fighting to be chosen, I also had the power to choose. And that goes both ways, the power to choose to be with someone and the power to choose to walk away. And in order to do this, I had to decondition a lot of my thoughts and beliefs when it came to my self-worth that actually originated from my past abandonment wound but really it wasn't until I realized that in order to find the right partner and enter the right relationship, I had to create the right relationship with myself first. I had to figure out how to be okay with being alone, which meant facing a lot of my demons. As you know, for a long time, I was afraid to be single or even alone because it made me question my worth. But because of that, I found myself settling for crumbs, engaging in self-sabotage, self-abandon, And holding on to relationships that not only didn't serve me in terms of how I wanted to be loved or show love, but they weren't aligned with my values or even safe. And for a really, really long time, I externalized my problems. I blamed the people I was dating and their bad behavior until I realized that everything I am discussing with you now is an inside job. I not only had to break the pattern, I also had to embody the very qualities and type of love I wanted for myself. As long as we come from a place of being incomplete or broken or damaged or confused, we are going to attract a partner who can't love us the way we want to be loved. It's like the classic case of how avoidant people chase avoidant people. Until you are open and ready for love, you won't attract healthy and long-lasting love that is aligned with your authentic self. And the best part is that once you create a healthy relationship with yourself, you will start to choose partners from a more empowered place. You will start to believe that you are worthy of having your needs met and that you are not asking for too much. That being said, I think it's important to be clear that there is absolutely no such thing as a perfect relationship. There are always, always, always going to be things that come up. I think a major misconception is that once we meet our person, things are all of a sudden going to be easy. And now that I'm with my person, it's laughable to me that this is the idea we are all sold. Because in my opinion, that's when the real work begins. Irrespective of how much you love each other, you're going to get triggered. Your past wounds and self-limiting beliefs will surface and resurface until you get to their root cause so that you can heal from them and stop letting them control you. The trick is to find the person you can grow with. Like I just shared about moving in with Nick, things still come up for us all the time. Almost daily, in fact. It is never perfect. And that's because even healthy relationships still have conflict. But as long as we can both take full ownership of our triggers, our emotions, and even our reactions, and agree that we want to be the best versions of ourselves together, we are both able to co-create a healthy relationship. But I get it. I was single for nine years. So I know how frustrating and challenging and just disheartening it can be when we are continuously attracting the wrong partners. Partners who betray us, who lie to us, who disrespect us, who even hurt us. But remember that you can always heal these patterns. And healing your patterns doesn't mean they just go away or disappear or whatever. But your reaction to your wounds when triggered slowly but surely begin to change and improve. You no longer respond from your wounded inner child. You no longer let your wounds control you. One big lesson for me and something that took a really, really long time for me to digest was that in order to create the love we want, we have to remember that we are worthy of being in a healthy relationship regardless of what we've witnessed or done in our lives. I'll leave it there, but as a reminder, I will be discussing all of this further with my psychologist friend, Rachel Tocasio, in our upcoming workshop on the 22nd of this month. It's called Why Attracting Healthy Love Starts With You. So if you want to hear more about it, make sure to sign up via the link in the show notes. That's it from me. Thank you so much for making it to the end of another season. There are big, big big, big changes to come in season five, which I will be announcing over the next couple of weeks. So please keep an ear and eye out for those. I love you all and we'll see you then.